Good morning, guys. As Seth mentioned, we are actually continuing in a series we started last week, a six-part series uh, that we're calling This is Grace. And of course, in this series, the topic that we're kind of investigating over the six-week course of time is the topic of grace. And quite honestly, the, the reason we're doing this series, we kind of mentioned this last week, is because here at Grace Church, we believe that grace is really, 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 really important. Um, not only is it the thing we named our church after, uh, but it's also kind of the central teaching that we're focused on here at Grace Church. It's what our heartbeat really is all about. It's the central message um, that we believe in. And we believe very, very firmly that what everyone needs more than they even know is a real encounter with grace. Um, that the grace of God has the power to totally, totally transform our lives. And so it's because of that that we said we want to take the next six weeks and really kind of investigate this topic of grace. And really, the question that we're asking is just quite simply this. Well, what is grace? Right? What is it? If it's so important, um, if it's the name of our church, if it's the thing that we get all jacked up about around here at Grace Church, if it's the central teaching that we're focusing on, then what exactly is grace and how are we to understand it? And if you are with us last week, we actually said that the answer to that question is more complicated than it might seem. Uh, because we said to simply give you a definition of grace or to simply offer an explanation of grace doesn't go far enough to describe the experience of grace. And so we said that, that there's much more to grace than just a definition. And so last week, if you were here, you might remember we actually used the analogy of the Grand Canyon. I said, I could show you a picture of the Grand Canyon. I said, I could give you a definition of the Grand Canyon. And while those things are accurate, you and I know that if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, those things don't do justice to the experience of the Grand Canyon. You can have a definition and an explanation, but, but it doesn't say anything about the experience of the thing. And you guys know that if you've been at the Grand Canyon, you know there's much more about the experience um, than, than a definition or than a picture can convey. And so we said in the same way, grace is kind of a similar idea. That, that grace, if we were just to give a definition of grace or to give an explanation of grace, that it wouldn't go far enough to describe the experience of grace that we believe that every person really needs in this life. In fact, last week we introduced kind of the big concept for this entire series. It's kind of the thesis statement for this whole series. And basically, each week we want to unpack the big idea. And this is the big idea uh, that we're speaking about. We introduced it last week. We said that we believe that grace is not simply a concept to be understood but it's a reality to be experienced. It's kind of the big idea that we've been conveying in this series. We believe that grace is not simply a concept to be understood. Um, that is to say, grace is not just some abstract theological jargon, right? It's not just a belief that's kind of put within a certain religious tradition. We believe that much more than that, grace is an experience. It's a reality that is to be experienced. So the question really is this then, not do you know about grace? It's not really the question. The real question is, man, have you experienced grace? Right? Have you been transformed by grace? Has, has, it, has, it, has it impacted your life in a, in a serious way? And that's really what we're talking about. And so because of that, for, for this whole six weeks, we said rather than giving you definitions and explanations about grace, which we said would fall short to describe the experience, we said rather than doing that, what we're going to do is we're going to talk through six indications that you've experienced grace. And so our hope is that as we walk through these six indications together through these weeks, that maybe you can kind of diagnose yourself and you can ask yourself, have I actually experienced grace? Not just do I know about grace, but have I experienced grace? And so last week, if you missed it, the first week we said, here's the first indication that you've experienced grace. Quite simply, we said the first indication, you know you've experienced grace when you're disturbed by grace. I know that might sound really, really strange to some of you or maybe intriguing. And I would just say that if you missed that conversation and you want to catch up, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, you can go to our website, graceohio.org, 
Uh, you can watch that or you can subscribe to our podcast. All that's for free and catch up that way. But this week we want to do in week two, we want to focus in on the second indication that you've experienced grace. And how do you know you've experienced grace? Here's the indication that we want to look at here this morning. We'll look at this idea that you've experienced grace when you've been devastated by sin. You've experienced grace when you've been devastated by sin. Now that's not a popular thing to say. Um, and so what do I mean when I say devastated by sin. Well, I want to show you what I'm talking about, and I want to look at a little bit of a case study this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, if you take them with me, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Isaiah 6. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and take them there. And uh, I'll also just say that if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning of your own, that's perfectly fine. We actually have some available for you. I think they're in the chairs. Page 477 is where you'll find Isaiah 6 there. Um, or if you have a smartphone, you can just get on Isaiah 6 that way if you want to as well. However you want to get there, go ahead and turn there. And uh, as you guys are flipping to Isaiah 6, kind of find it in your Bibles and those type of things, um, let me just give you uh, a, quick, a quick story about an experience I had a while ago. So I grew up in a house that was relatively musical, um, kind of grew up around music. So my dad plays guitar, uh, my mom plays the piano, and so I just kind of grew up in that setting. So when I was 11 years old, um, I started to take interest in guitar, and I started to, to play, started to take lessons, playing the guitar. In addition to that, not only did I start getting into guitar, but I had a bunch of friends at the same time that also started getting into the guitar. And so this became, for us, kind of the, the thing that our friendship was centered around, right? So every time we would hang out, we were playing guitar. We'd play till the late hours of night. We were looking at guitar magazines. We were going to guitar stores. We were constantly listening to music, trying to figure stuff out. And so guitar, for a little while, was sort of like the, the, the center of my life, right? I just play guitar all the time. And because my friends also play guitar, it actually worked out pretty well because we ended up challenging each other. And so, and so the competitive nature uh, would oftentimes come out, and it's in a friendly way, but like my friend would figure out a riff or something that I couldn't play, and then I'd be challenged, and so I would go home and practice even harder, and then I would learn how to play that riff, and then I would learn a song that my friend couldn't, couldn't play, and then he would come back, and he would learn how to play it. We would just play guitar and play guitar and play guitar. So we did this for years, right? And after a few years of doing this, I remember one day thinking to myself, man, I'm getting pretty good at this. And I think I'm a pretty good guitarist. And, and I could play just about every song that I wanted to play from my favorite bands. Um, anytime I heard something on the radio, I could pick it up pretty easily. I was getting pretty good at it. And compared to my other friends that also played, I was like, man, I could hold my own. I'm just as good as them, if not better than some of them. And I remember thinking, I'm a pretty good guitarist, right? Until one day, um, I got invited to go to a Phil Kagey concert. Now, I don't know if you guys know anything about Phil Kagey, um, but Phil Kagey is just, 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 the, just the bare minimum to know about him. He is a legendary guitarist, okay? There are legends about this guy. Just to, just to give you some glimpse of how good this guy is, there is a legend. I don't know if this is true or not. If we have any fact finders in the room, I'd be curious to find out. But there supposedly, allegedly, was an interview with Jimi Hendrix where the interviewer asked Jimi Hendrix, what does it feel like to be the best guitarist in the world? And Jimi Hendrix said, I don't know, ask Phil Kagey. Okay? So that's how good this guy was known to be. Now, I went to the concert. I had heard of Phil Kagey. I had never seen Phil Kagey. All right? So my friend and I went to this concert. I'm real excited about this. And so I sit down in the amphitheater where he's playing at. Phil Kagey comes out and for the next two hours proceeds to blow my face off with his incredible abilities. Okay? I mean, he came out. He had no musical accompaniment. There was no, no bass, no drums, no extra guitars. It was just him and a pedal board and his guitar. If you don't know what a pedal board is, that's a pedal board, right? It's just a bunch of effects pedals. Just him and his guitar and his effects board. And for two hours, he mesmerized me with his unbelievable skill. 
And as I watched Phil Kage play, there was two reactions that were happening in me simultaneously. The first reaction was this. I was just totally amazed. I was just, I was spellbound. My jaw was to the floor because of his skill. I couldn't believe that one man could fill an entire room with that skill and, that, and just, the mas- just how masterfully he played his instrument. I was amazed. On the other side, I was, my reaction was just, I was just depressed. As a guitarist, I was just depressed. In fact, I remember walking to my car with my friend after the Phil Kage concert, and I remember looking at him saying, dude, I don't even want to play anymore. I was like, I don't even want to play. I want to go home, I want to get my guitar, I want to come back and lay it at his feet because I am not worthy to play guitar anymore. And I thought I was good, but now I realize I wasn't good, right? Phil Kage, in the presence of his masterful skill, in the presence of his superlativeness as a guitarist, I was like, man, I'm done. I am just not good. I thought I was good, right? It's amazing how that one experience changed my perception of myself. It changed my perception of the instrument. It changed my perception about everything as it related to the guitar. You guys, one of the things that I think many people in our culture have a really hard time with, with the Bible, is is what the Bible teaches in specific about about the nature of humanity. This is something that people have a hard time with. You know, the Bible is very clear on this. The Bible believes that mankind, that humanity, that the nature of man is intrinsically evil. That's what the Bible says. The Bible talks about how we are, we are, in our hearts, by nature, we are sinful people. We are evil people. We are wicked people. And for many of us, that really grates against us. We don't like that idea. But the Bible makes no bones about it. It's very clear that this is what Scripture teaches us about the nature of mankind. Uh, Let me just give you a couple passages of Scripture to validate what I'm talking about. In one place, in Psalm 51, uh, verse 5, King David says this. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth. I was sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. And you see what David's saying? He's saying, From the time I was born, I was a sinful person, that my very nature is one of sin. See, David, David says, he doesn't say, hey, I was born good and then I got bad. He says, no, I was born bad and then I got worse. That's David's perception of humanity as God teaches it. Jesus validates this himself. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, he says, from out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, right? And you see what Jesus is saying there? Jesus says that the source of all evil that the source of wickedness that we see in the world today actually comes from within. And so when you look at the evil things that we see in our world, the wickedness that we see in our world, Jesus says, you know where that flows from? It flows not from without us, but from within us. It comes from our heart. Murder flows from the heart. Adultery flows from the heart. Those things come from our heart. And so the Bible makes no bones about it. It basically tells us that the nature of humanity is evil, is sinful, is wicked. And like I said, for some of you, even as I say that, you're just like, but I don't agree with that. I just don't agree with that, right? And and the reason, honestly, quite honestly, is because many of us, we are taught that that's not true. Our culture tells us that all the time, right? We're told all the time, man, you're you're a good person. We're all good people, you know, And, and your heart's good. And so you need to follow your heart. You know, you need to listen to your heart. You know, you got you to gotta, you gotta be in tune with your heart. And if you ignore your heart, you might have a total eclipse of the heart, right? And, and that we, we sing about it, and there's, there's poetry about it, and there's movies about it, about our heart. Our heart is good. Our heart is good. Our heart is good. The Bible looks at it, and we completely disagree with that statement, right? For some of you, you don't believe that. For some of you this morning, if I asked you, are you a good person? If I asked you, hey, are you a good person? Some of you, if you were to answer it honestly, you'd say, you know what? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a good person. 
And you might say, well, sure, you know, there's things I've done that I regret and that type of thing. But come on, for the most part, I'm a pretty good person. Right? I, haven't, I haven't, like, you know, done any of the serious sins. I'm a relatively good person. And I'm just saying that if that's your response, today what I, I want to do is I want to show you the story of a man, kind of a case study, who if you asked him, are you a good person? He would have said, absolutely. Absolutely, I'm a good person. And he has one encounter with God. And not only does it change the way that he views God, but it utterly changes the way that he views himself. And I want to take a look at what happens when he experiences grace and how he is devastated by sin. All right, so Isaiah 6 is where we're going. We're going to go ahead and look at this passage together in chapter 6. Before we start reading, let me just give you a tiny bit of background so you understand a little bit of the context. So Isaiah was a book that was written by a guy named Isaiah. Um, Some of you might might know Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, which basically meant he was one of God's spokespeople. He would speak on behalf of God. Um, Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah uh, over the course of a very long time, but it was all sort of around about 700 BC. That's when this was written. And Isaiah, when we get to chapter 6, we're about to read, he's actually, uh, he's actually uh, reenacting for us and telling us about, kind of recounting for us, an experience he had where he had a unique opportunity to see God in a way that none of us probably have before. And this interaction that he has with God in Isaiah chapter 6 not only changes the way that he views God, it changes the way he views himself. So let's just look at this crazy encounter Isaiah has with God. We'll start in verse 1. It says this. Isaiah writes... He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So let me just pause there for just one second. So the Bible tells us that Isaiah has this crazy experience where he sees the Lord seated on a throne. And the Bible doesn't really tell us about this experience, but it also tells us the time in which this happened, which, by the way, would have been very significant. If you notice in that verse, it says at the beginning, it was in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, that's pretty significant. And the reason that's significant is because Uzziah, back in this time, was known to be a very, very, very good king. Um, He had led the nation of Israel for 52 years. Underneath his leadership, history tells us that Israel prospered in an unprecedented way. They experienced national security. They experienced incredible victory underneath the leader, leadership of King Uzziah. And now, after 52 years of leadership, we are told that King Uzziah unexpectedly dies. And so he's dead now. King Uzziah is dead. And you can only imagine the kind of turmoil that this introduced into the nation of Israel. The nation was in a turbulent time because its sense of security had been stripped from it. And so the Bible tells us that it's in that time when King Uzziah died in a time of national insecurity that that Isaiah says, man, in the year of his death, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. What's he saying here? He's saying this, basically. In the year that the earthly king died, I saw the real king. I saw the king of the universe. And what was he doing? Well, the Bible tells us he was seated on the throne. Right Now notice, he wasn't standing, he wasn't pacing, he wasn't anxious or worried. He's sitting down, ruling the universe, says, I saw the king. And then he goes on to describe his experience. And I'm just telling you, these next verses are kind of trippy. But check this out, look at verse 2. He says, as I saw the Lord above him, there were seraphim. Now seraphim uh, are a type of angel that are described in the Bible. They live in the presence of God. He says, so above God, there was these seraphim, and they each had six wings, totally trippy. With two wings, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. Then in verse three, it says, and they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. 
And Isaiah has this crazy experience. He sees God on his throne. And then as he sees him, the Bible says that there are these seraphim, these angels that are flying all around God. And they're all shouting out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And as they do it, it's like an earthquake. The whole temple begins shaking. Now, it's probably worth mentioning at this point, by the way, that this experience that Isaiah had is actually very similar to an experience that many others had in the Bible when they encountered the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. And so in Ezekiel, we are told that Ezekiel has a very similar experience. He sees the throne, he sees the angels, he sees God in his splendor. We're told in Revelation that John, uh, one of the disciples of Jesus, he gets to see Jesus sitting on his throne. He sees a very, very similar circumstance. In fact, we're even told in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 12, that who Isaiah was seeing on the throne was Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 12 just says that, that Isaiah saw Jesus. Now, for some of us, that seems kind of strange, right? Because when we think of Jesus, we tend to think of a 33-year-old Jewish carpenter. That's kind of the picture that comes to our mind. And that's accurate to some extent, because the Bible tells us that Jesus humbled himself, took on flesh, became a person, and dwelt among us. But this picture of Jesus that we have here is a more accurate picture of what he's like most of the time. And so Isaiah comes into the throne room of God and he sees Jesus sitting on the throne and the angels are flying around him. And what are the angels shouting? I love this. You know what the angels are shouting over and over again? They're saying, holy, holy, holy. Something I think is really fascinating. Um, In the Hebrew language, in in, in this language in which this was written, um, they oftentimes emphasize things by repetition. So in the Hebrew language, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. So I'll give you an example. In uh, Genesis chapter 14, there's a place in the Bible where it says that there were some people who fell into some very deep pits. That's what it says in Genesis 14. But when you look at it in the Hebrew language, it doesn't say very deep pits. It says they fell into pit pits. That's what it says in the Hebrew language. These aren't just like pits. These are the pittiest pits imaginable. Okay? They, are, they are really, really deep pits. Uh, there's a place in 2 Kings where it says they had the purest gold. Uh, but it doesn't say purest gold in the original language. It says they had gold gold, right? This is the goldiest gold the purest gold that you can imagine. I think that's kind of a cool way of doing things, don't you? Personally, I think we should try to resurrect that and bring that back. And so I'll just give you a little homework assignment if you're willing. Uh, This week, try to emphasize by repetition. See how it goes for you, right? So if you're at lunch today and someone's like, you know, hey, how's how's your food? Just try being like, oh, this isn't a sandwich. This is a sandwich sandwich. That's how good this is, right? When you're ordering your lunch today, say, hey, can I get some, I don't want bacon. I want bacon, bacon. Right? Don't give me your normal, regular bacon. I want the good stuff, right? The bacon, bacon. And, and, but that's how, they would, that's how they would emphasize things back in this culture is they would, they would use repetition. They would employ that. And isn't it fascinating that this is not only the only time in Scripture, but, but the way in which it's used here. This is the only time throughout the whole Bible that, that something is emphasized three times. Isaiah gets in the presence of God and he says, holy, holy isn't enough, man. We've got to go up on three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, And the angels are crying out three times. God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. You guys, if you and I were to have an experience where we were to stand in the presence of God like Isaiah did here, I'm just telling you the most prominent characteristic that would stand out to us about God would be his holiness. Okay? God is love, absolutely. God is just, totally. Um, God is merciful, entirely. But God is three times holy, right? And that, that begs a really important question, doesn't it? What exactly is holiness then? If, if he's three times holy, that's a strange word. It's kind of a churchy word, isn't it? I don't think, in fact, I don't think you really talk about that word in any other setting except as it relates to religious things. So what exactly is holiness? Well, the word holy is a really interesting word. It has kind of two meanings to it. 
And uh, in one sense, the word holy, it means, it means um, uniqueness, right? It means set apart, different, superlativeness. In one sense, that's what holiness means. And I, I'm just saying, if you and I were to experience something like Isaiah did, and we were to stand in the presence of God, one of the things that would become abundantly clear to us if we were to stand before God in all of his glory is that we would realize how unbelievably different he is than us, how totally superlative God is, how unique he is, how, how strange he is to us, how alien he is. That would be so evident to us. God is three times holy. See, one of the things I think that you and I sometimes fall foul to, I know I do sometimes, is that sometimes we tend to make God in our own image. And so we tend to think, man, God acts like us. God thinks like us. God's motivated like us. God perceives worldly affairs the same way that we perceive worldly affairs. But I'm just saying, if we stood before God like Isaiah did, we would realize God is so different than we are. He is so unique. He is so alien. He is so foreign. And when the created stands before the creator, the distinction is made abundantly clear when you see it. The angels are shouting out, holy, 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 and Isaiah sees the holiness of God. The holiness of God means uniqueness. It means superlativeness, but it also means something else. It also means perfection. It means that God is is morally and characteristically perfect in every way. And look, you and I, my guess is, none of us have had an experience where we have stood in the presence of total perfection. But my guess is, if we stood in the presence of complete holiness of complete perfection and superlativeness in the same way that Isaiah did, we would probably have the same reaction that Isaiah and the angels had. Let's think about it for a minute. What did the angels do when they were in the presence of this God? Well, the Bible tells us that the angels are covering their face and they're covering their feet and they're flying and they're shouting out, holy, holy, holy. Why do the angels cover their face? Why are they covering their feet? Um, Some commentators speculate on this, but I like the opinion most of them agree that the reason the angels are shielding their face is because they're shielding themselves from the holiness of God. They cannot, as created beings, gaze upon the holiness of God. So they shield themselves from the holiness of God. And the reason they cover their feet, most commentators agree, is because they are covering themselves and hiding themselves from their shame. If you think about it, feet, right, are a great symbol of our creatureliness. Feet are pretty gross, aren't they? When you think about it, feet are the part of our body that touch the ground, they touch the dirt. Feet are nasty, right? I have really, really gross feet. I don't have any big toenails. That might be too much information for some of you. (laughs) But um, they're gross. And when the angels stand in the presence of God, they have two reactions happening at the same time. They are amazed at the holiness of God, and they are shamed at their filth and their dirtiness in the presence of this God. And not only the angels, but look at Isaiah. Watch his response. Look what he says in verse 5. Here's what Isaiah says. Woe to me! I cried, woe to me, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of glory. Isaiah's response, he says, man, woe to me, which means I'm cursed. He says, I'm ruined, which the the translation there would be, man, I'm toast. He thought he was a dead man. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinful person and I live among a sinful people. That's what Isaiah is saying here. Because one of the things that we know about Isaiah, which history tells us, is that Isaiah, compared to other people in his time, he was a high-class person. Um, Isaiah, compared to other people around him, he would have been a really good dude. Um, he uh, was royalty. He w- his uncle was the king. Uh, we find that out about Isaiah. Isaiah was a man of incredible skill. 
um, artistic skill, um, oratory skill, intellectual skill. In addition to that, he was a religious guy, so he had a lot of morality. So this guy, Isaiah, had the pedigree, right? He was an elite. Um, he had uh, morality, he was a good guy, and he had ability. He had all of that. And my guess is if you would have asked Isaiah, hey, are you a good guy? He probably would have been like, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. You know, compared to other people, I'm, I'm actually kind of a big deal, right? But one interaction with God, one moment standing in the presence of the holiness of God, and he, compl- he completely changes his view on things. And his response, he says, man, woe to me, which means, man, I'm cursed. And then he says, I'm ruined, which means I'm about to die. This is, I am ruined before a holy God. And then he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. When Isaiah sees God, the first thing that becomes very clear to him is not only God's holiness, but it's also his sinfulness. And he's devastated by his sin. And you guys, this wasn't just Isaiah's response. When you read through the Bible and you read about people who have interactions with God like this, it's actually kind of fun to read. They all come to the same conclusion, every single one of them. You guys remember what happens in Revelation? Some of you might know this. When John meets Jesus on his throne, remember what happens? Bible says John fell over like a dead man. He just saw God. He's like, "Uh uh-oh, you know? I'm done, man. I'm done. You guys remember what happens when Peter sees Jesus' glory? This is what he says. He says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He's like, you're holy and I'm sinful. That's the response that everyone has when they stand before a holy God. Job, in Job chapter 42, he has an encounter with God. You remember what he says to God? He says, I have heard about you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes. And he says, and I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. He comes to the same conclusion. You guys remember Saul? In the book of Acts, there's a man named Saul. He made it his life ambition to persecute Christians. And then one day he's walking down the road and a light from heaven comes to him and Jesus Christ himself reveals himself to Saul in such a blinding light that he falls to the ground and he's blinded for three days and he looks up and he says, who are you, Lord? And you remember what God says? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Saul's probably like, oh, crap. You know, <laughs> I got it wrong, man. And you know what happens after that? Saul goes away, his vision is restored, and he changes his name to Paul. You guys know what Paul means? It means tiny. That's what Paul means in the Greek. It means small. So, so Saul's like, man, you know, I used to be a big deal. I used to think I was awesome. I used to think I was too sexy for my shirt. Then I met Jesus. Now I changed my name to tiny because that's what I am. I am small in the presence of a holy God. And Isaiah has the same response here. You guys, I believe that when Isaiah comes before God, right, that, that, that he encounters the glory of God. What is it that happened to Isaiah? What is it that happened to John? What is it that happened to Saul? What is it that happened to these guys? Well, I'll tell you what it is that happened to them, is they experienced the glory of a holy God. I love the way the angels say it. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his Glory. There's another word, glory. That's another churchy word, isn't it? Glory. What does glory mean? I, I love this. You know, in the original language, what glory means is it literally means weightiness. It means heaviness. That's what it means. I love that because th- this tends to be a helpful illustration for me. I've used this illustration in the past, but it's really helped me. But, uh, but if you think about our solar system, um, or you think about our universe for that matter, what is it that determines uh, which objects orbit other objects? What, what determines that? Well, it's gravity, 
right? So why is it that the, the earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa? Why is that? Well, it's because the sun has more weight than the earth. It has more uh, gravity than the earth. It has more glory than the earth. Why is it that the moon revolves around the earth and not vice versa? Well, it's because the moon has less glory than the earth. The earth contains more glory. See, when Isaiah stands before God, he sees him in all of his holiness. He realizes the glory of God, the weightiness of God. And by necessity, his life now has to orbit around the glory of God. Listen, how do you know that you're dealing with God as a concept versus God as a reality? I'll tell you how you know. God as a concept is lighter than you. It's lighter than you. It orbits you. Some of you this morning, if I asked you, do you believe in God? You would tell me yes. But if you were to explain your God to me, he's a God that revolves around you. He revolves around your preferences. He revolves around your opinions, your prejudices. He revolves around your beliefs. He revolves around your life, around your plans. And that's the, that's the God that you have. And you can hear it sometimes the way we talk. Sometimes the way we talk reveals that. We say, oh, you know, I like a God who's loving and kind and gracious, but I'm not really sure I can believe in a God who is, is judgmental versus wrath. I'm not sure if I believe in this whole sin deal. And I just kind of, I, I like this part of God, but not this part of God. So I'm gonna take these components. I'm gonna build my own God, kind of like build a bear. I'm gonna build a God to met my, and I'm just saying, if you're doing that, if you're doing that, that's very manageable. You've created a very manageable God, but that is not God as a reality. Because God, God as a concept is lighter than you and it orbits you. God as a reality is heavier than you. God as a reality by necessity means that my beliefs and my preferences must bend to him because he's, because he's heavier than I am. He, God has more glory than my, than my preferences. He has more glory than my prejudices. God has more glory than my beliefs. God has more glory. And, and, and the way that you know you're dealing with a real God is because stuff in your life starts giving way to the holiness and to the majesty of God. Listen, if you believe in God and your life hasn't changed all that much, there's a very, very, very good chance that you might be dealing with God as a concept and not God as a reality. Because when God as a reality crashes in your life and the holiness of God and you interact with that, what becomes so evidently clear is his glory and is his weightiness, and by necessity, there's stuff in your life that has to change, and there's things about the way you think that have to be changed, and there's ways that God transform you because of his glory. It's how you know the difference between whether you're dealing with God as a concept or God as a reality. See, I believe that when Isaiah saw God for the first time, that Isaiah didn't just see God for the first time. I believe Isaiah saw Isaiah for the first time when he saw God. For the very first time, Isaiah knew who he was, for the very first time. So you guys, I believe that for many of us, the way that we tend to identify ourselves, and naturally all of us do this, is we tend to identify ourselves by the way we compare to other people. We believe, many of us, that the, that the, the key to self-actualization is human comparison. And so we find our identity in how we size up to each other. So maybe for you, maybe you're like, I'm the smart one. And that's how you identify yourself. I'm the smart one. And you know what? To some extent, you probably are. When you compare yourself to other people, you might be in the top category of the, of the smartest people in the room. Maybe you are, right? For some of you, you might think to yourself, you know, you might identify yourself, I'm the attractive one. I'm the attractive, that's not a confession, by the way. But you're like, I'm, I'm the attractive, and compared to, to other people in the room, maybe you are truly the attractive one. 
Some of you are like, I'm the funny one, right? I'm the funny one. I, I get more laughs than other people do. And compared to other people, that might be true. You might get more laughs. For some of you, are like, I'm the rich one. I'm the successful one. Or maybe for you, maybe it's the other way. Maybe you're like, I'm the black sheep. I'm the one in the fit. My, my, my brother or sister was the one who the parent, my parents uh, adored and favored, and I was the one who wasn't. Maybe that's you, right? And, and you realize that. And listen, if, if we simply judge ourselves on how we compare to one another, then it is true that most of us are pretty good people. This room is probably full of some pretty good people compared to other people. You're a church for crying out loud, right? Some of you are like, I, I think about my life, you know, I, I, I've, I've done some things I regret, but I haven't, you know, I haven't killed anybody. Or maybe you have killed someone. You're like, I haven't killed 10 people, right? <laughs> and, and, and we have a way of, uh, and we oftentimes grade ourselves on that curve. We compare ourselves to each other. But what God said, Isaiah reveals to us that the actual way that we, that we come to a place of self-actualization is not by human comparison. It's only when the created reveals himself and compares himself to the creator that they find out who they really are, right? And not only does Isaiah see God for the first time, but Isaiah sees himself for the first time. And not only does he see himself for the first time, he sees humanity for the first time. And so he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He says, oh my gosh, compared to God, man, I am destroyed. And not just me, everyone I know, everyone I know, everybody falls short of God's glorious standard. Because in the presence of a holy God, all of us would be devastated by our sin. We would all realize how, how much we fall short of the glory of God. And you see what happens is I, Isaiah begins to transform because not only now does he desire glory, not only does he desire God's grace for himself, he desires God's grace for everybody else too. And one of the ways that you know you're interacting with a real God is when his glory begins to give way to things in your life and you're no longer self-actualized by human comparison, but you self-actualized by looking at the Lord God and saying, my goodness, how far, how far I have fallen short. And listen, when that happens, one of the things that becomes so clear is not only how holy God is, not only the glory he has, but how sinful we are. Of how you become devastated with your sin. You come to a place, like I did at the Phil Kagey concert, when I said, I'm not good. I thought I was good. I'm not good. I'm sinful. I'm wicked. I'm evil in my heart. And even as I say some of that, I know that that grades against some of you. And some of you are like, man, I thought this was a series about grace. Why are we talking about sin? Can't we talk about love and the grace of God? Listen, I am very confident in this, that you cannot understand the heights of God's grace until you first understand the depths of your sin. Because the depths of our sin reveals to us the heights of God's grace. I wrote it down in my notes this way. If you find it helpful, you can jot it down too. I put this. I said, the grace of God never minimizes the seriousness of sin. The grace of God never minimizes the seriousness of sin. But rather, the seriousness of sin reveals the magnitude of grace. You don't understand the heights of God's grace until you understand the depths of your sin. And by the way, that's exactly what happens in the book of Isaiah. We're told right after Isaiah experiences God in verses six and seven, he, he is devastated by his sin. And the moment he confesses his sin in verses six and seven, God comes and he atones for his sin. He forgives Isaiah and he, he atones for his, his radical sin. And, and Isaiah experiences the radical grace of God. He thought he was dead. And God comes to him and he forgives him. He atones for his sin. 
And you know what happens in that moment? Grace explodes in Isaiah's life. And from this point forward, he begins to live his life in response to God's radical grace, which is covered over his radical sin. In fact, you see it. Look at verse 8. I, just, I, think this is, I actually think this is somewhat humorous what happens. Verse 8. So Isaiah becomes devastated with sin. God forgives him. Verse 8. Then I heard a voice from the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. Right? Here I am. Send me. I love this. The nanosecond after Grace explodes in Isaiah's life. God is recruiting Isaiah to do his work. He says, who's going to go for me? And like an anxious kid, like in a classroom, Isaiah's like, I'll do it. Here I am. You send me. And the guy doesn't even wait to hear the job description, which if you guys know the job description, it was rough. It was rough. But Isaiah, see, what you see here is you see grace exploding in his life. And he says, I will do whatever you ask, God. Here I am. Send me. Whatever. You want me to do, I'll do it, I don't care, right? Because he's experienced the glory of God and now we begin to watch Isaiah's life orbit around the plan of God, the mission of God, the desires of God, the will of God. Grace explodes in his life and from this point forward, Isaiah lives a life of radical love to others, of radical service to God. He lives a life because he's transformed now by the grace of God. And from this point forward, he's changed forever. And you guys, I believe that this is how it works for everybody, not just Isaiah, but for all of us, that we have to become devastated by our sin for us to fully understand the magnitude of God's grace. And when that interaction happens, it results in a transformed life where we stand before God and say, whatever you want me to do, I'm at your service. Because my sin, I was crushed by my sin, but you atoned for my sin, and Jesus has done that for us, and and now I'm free to live the life that you call me to live. You were transformed by grace. So let me just ask you guys a question, and then we'll close. The question I want to ask you this, this morning is just real simple, is this. Have you experienced God like this before? Not, not like, did you see God on his throne with seraphim and angels flying around? Not that. I don't think anyone's seen that. But, the, but have you experienced God like this, right? Have you been devastated by your sin? Have you been? Have you been in a place where you find yourself in agreement with what the Bible teaches about our condition? Because you guys, the Bible, the condition that the Bible describes is not, a, it's bleak, man. The Bible says that you and I, in our sin, we are by nature objects of God's wrath. That's what the Bible says. Yeah, that's not good, right? The Bible says that, that in our sin, we are enemies of God. We have been alienated because of our disobedience. These are very, very severe things, the Bible, severe titles the Bible has put on our condition. You've been devastated by sin? Has that occurred to you before? Have you, have, have you been amazed by God's grace? Has that happened to you? Have you realized, man, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us, Jesus has atoned for us in the, the same God who is sitting on this throne, who if we saw, we would be on our faces cursing ourselves. That same God is the one who died on the cross for our sins. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Some of you in this room, you think that, that you've gone too far, you've sinned too much, God can't forgive you. You are so wrong. You are so wrong. You cannot outsing God's grace. His grace is massive. And, and, and the depths of our sin simply reveals the heights of his grace. And the deeper we sin, the higher his grace goes. Have you experienced it? Have you been amazed by it? And the last question, just quite honestly, 
Are you dealing with God as a reality or are you dealing with God as a concept? Is God, as a, is God a concept for you? Is he lighter than you? Does God revolve around you, around your preferences, around your opinions, around your plans, around your desires? If that's the case, you probably aren't dealing with the real God. Right? You're probably dealing with a concept, right? Has God's glory begun to give way to things in your life? Have you found that at times you are challenged? At times you, you, are, you are pushed out of your comfort zone? Have you even found that at times you are offended by God? If that hasn't happened, I submit to you that it might be very, very possible that you haven't dealt with God as a reality. Because the Bible says that he's a God of glory and his glory has more weight than our opinions, more weight than our preferences. And by nature, our life begins to bend to him in the same way that it has with Isaiah's. Have you experienced God in this way? So here's what I wanna do as we close. I gave you a few questions. I wanna give you some time, I'm gonna ask the band to come up and I wanna do something kind of unconventional this morning. I wanna ask the band to just play some, play some music for a couple minutes. And as they do that, I wanna give you space to pray and to talk to this God. I, I feel like it would be, I feel like it would, it would, I would be remiss if I was just to tell you about this incredible God and then simply pray and be done. I feel like I need to give you room to talk to him. For some of you, you need to confess to him. For some of you, maybe for the first time ever, you need, to, you need to express yourself and pray to him. For some of you, maybe you need to ask this question, God, what, what needs to give way in my life to your glory? How do I need to live in light of your holiness? For some of you, you're like, I've never experienced this before. Would you ask God? Do you ask God to reveal himself to you in these ways? Not with a throne and angels and all that kind of stuff, but to be devastated by your sin, to be transformed by his grace and to live with God in, in, in light of the holiness and the glory of God. So I want to give you some space. You talk to God. Do work with him. I'll pray for us, and then I'll let you pray. Heavenly Father, I want to say thank you for your word to us this morning. Um, what a crazy passage. And Lord, the truth is that if any of us were to stand before you today, the one thing that would become blatantly clear, um, it would be our depravity, and it would be your holiness and glory. Father, I pray that... Um, that you would help us to be a church, to be people who live our lives with the reality of God and not with the concept of God. Lord, help us to, to, to live our lives in a way uh, that, we, that we live in, uh, in, in view of your grace and in view of your mercy and transformed by it. God, I, I thank you that the, the depths of our sin reveals to us the heights of your grace and I'm so thankful that we cannot sin your grace that you've provided it for us. And the truth is, Lord, we can't understand grace if we don't understand sin. Because if we, if we have grace and we don't have sin, then we have cheap grace. It's not costly. But the grace that you provided us costed us your very son on the cross. But what, what a price to be paid. And that price reveals for us how, how deep our sin goes. And so, Father, the truth is we're more messed up than we think we are. We're more messed up than we even know and we're more accepted than we can believe because of your grace to us. And so we say thank you for these things in Jesus' name.